We may be closing in on terror season, but today's guest ensures that summer spirit is something we can enjoy all year long. Melanie Mazarin is the founder of Gia, an herbaceous alcohol-free brand that distills the spirit of drinking without the toxins or the hangover. Melanie was the former head of retail at Glossier, where she was in charge of creating offline experiences for the brand, and former creative director at Dig In, where she led the rebrand of the farm source restaurant chain. These wide-ranging experiences and dynamic, high-growth companies set her on the path to start Ghia. Today, Melanie shares how a holiday in Italy inspired the launch of an alcohol-free aperitivo buzzing on everyone's radar. Here's Melanie on the line. So, hi, Melanie. Thank you so much for joining me today here on the Art of Travel podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. And I saw that you recently took a road trip and I wanted to know, since this is a travel podcast, how did it go? It went super well. I actually had never slept outside before in a tent. And so it was my first camping trip and it was so special between like stargazing and just like discovering all of the national parks. It was really, really special. And where did you stop on your road trip? We drove from LA first to Vegas, stopped by the Seven Magic Mountains by Hugo Rondinon uh, on the way, and then drove to Zion, which is breathtakingly beautiful. Took a little hike there and then drove to Lake Powell just in time for sunset. We set up camp there and slept in Lake Powell. And then the following day, we spent the day at the lake. You know, we kayaked, we moved around a bit, hiked, explored some of the caves, which looks so small from the boat and then you get there and they're just absolutely gigantic and just the scale you realize the scale of this country is is mesmerizing and then we slept in Lake Powell again went to Amangiri and then went to Sedona and um, stayed in a hotel there that was really beautiful in the middle of all the red rocks played some tennis which I know will resonate with you (laughs) and we uh, drove back through Joshua Tree where I had never been And I think actually one of my favorite parts of the trip was seeing all of the um, Choya cacti in Joshua Tree that are just so adorable. And there are just so many of them. That sounds so beautiful and remote, especially after, you know, traveling through a few cities this summer. I'm sure the isolated landscape was a nice refresh. Yes, it was my first time not having my phone working for more than a few hours in a few years, actually. Oh, wow. And what was that experience like? It was really nice. It was like someone turned off the inner monologue in my head for a minute. And I think also I sort of got to a place where the team was taking care of things in the office. They knew I was away. So it was, it felt like a very safe place to decompress. And I realized that I really needed it. So the whole thing was just really special. Oh, congratulations. That sounds really nice. So um, I wanted to go back a few steps and I wanted to chat with you about sort of your upbringing and your cultural background. I know you're, you're from Lyon, but you also studied in the U.S. Tell me a little bit about your background. Absolutely. So I was born in Lyon, which is for those who know the city, they'll know that we eat really well there. It's one of the main food cities in Europe. And my grandparents lived in the south of France. So I spent a lot of time, you know, near the Mediterranean. And I just had this kind of craving for adventure, really wanted to study in a liberal liberal arts place. And I moved to the US to go to college. So I went to Brown in 2008, which was probably the most defining experience of my life actually this like change of course really I then moved to New York and I was there for 10 years and I recently moved to Los Angeles California 
what were you doing after college? So after college, I actually, so I was in college during the financial crisis and I really wanted to stay in the, in the United States and I uh, ended up working for Goldman Sachs in finance. I was very lucky to have a, a job and it was one of the few jobs that sponsored visas for international students. So it worked out really nicely. I worked in the investment banking division of Goldman for two years, which I realized was not for me and I definitely felt a little bit out of place there but also was probably the best training and experience that I could have gotten um, right out of college. It was a bit of a boot camp. And then I moved on from Goldman. I ended up working for one of their clients, American Eagle Outfitters, which doesn't really need any introduction and is a big corporation. I felt like maybe consumer retail was more tangible and an industry that would be better for me to kind of evolve in, but it was just too big of a company and I wanted to be in a smaller structure where I could have more impact. And I very randomly met the CEO of Digin actually because I sent a customer service email with some suggestions and it happened to be on one of the days where they changed some things in the company. And so the CEO was reading the emails and he asked me out for coffee to kind of talk about all these things I had noticed in the restaurants. And we just ended up really hitting it off. And that was another very defining moment where I always thought I had a plan. I was going to work in finance. I was going to climb up the corporate ladder. And then really on a whim, I said, actually, no, I'm going to work for this food startup. They only have six restaurants. But I was so intrigued by the food system in America. I had always kind of had stomach pains and it definitely got worse when I moved to the US and I was really interested in like what caused that and how we could make it better. And Digin was working directly with farms and they were so focused on their supply chain. But from my perspective, they weren't really good at telling that story to customers. And that was all from intuition. I had no marketing experience whatsoever. And it was really an incredible professional opportunity. You meet people like Adam, the CEO, up again and he gave me this really safe place to make mistakes and learn on the job and I ended up staying there for a few years you know doing a rebrand I was designing some of the restaurants I was able to work with designers I was able to do so many things that you know a lot of people 23 24 years old like don't get to do but I was also working really hard and we opened so many restaurants in that time we opened Boston and I really learned on the job which I realized you know I really loved and at that point a few years later I ended up meeting the team over at Glossier that was kind of the hot new startup in New York City and a brand that was obviously very fun to work with and they lured me in so I ended up jumping ship and working for Glossier at first I was doing some strategy work and I was director of retail and then you know retail grew there and I worked more and more closely with Emily on what it meant to create the third dimension of a brand that was almost exclusively built on the internet. They were really trailblazers at the time and it was just an incredible challenge to think about what these physical touch points were. Sort of a continuation in hindsight of my hospitality experience. It's like, what does it smell like? What does it look like? How do you feel? What are all of these elements that make it the glossy experience? At a time when all of the companies that were digitally native and were going into retail were sort of replicating this online experience offline. You had the Warby Parkers and, you know, the Reformations and they were opening like digital stores. You know, there were stores that had really consistent experience, whether you went in Boston, in Chicago, in New York, in LA, and you could track your orders seamlessly between online and offline. 
I was reading that when you were at Dig In, you were in charge of the branding, marketing, and communication, and overall the digital experience of the company. And then moving into Glossier, you did the role reversal of bringing that digital experience offline. How do you communicate a brand through a space? That's a really good way to put it, actually. I never thought about it that way. But communicating through a space is almost second nature to me. It's the way that I was raised. It's something that came very naturally. And so once we had to put some strategy behind it, it just became really fun. I think Glossier had such a strong brand, but at the same time, it was also really versatile. And that's what made it so fun. It was like, how do we actually create the exact opposite of what these other companies are doing? Not because we just want to do things differently, but because we really want the Glossy experience to be super special for the customer. And that meant localizing it. And it meant really making it as different as possible from the online experience that customers would want to do both. And also having that moment offline, I think you have an opportunity offline to really create trust with your customers as opposed to another Instagram brand. And so for us, it was like really thinking about all of those sensory touch points and really bringing them to life into the Glossier world. So the first thing I did when I got there is I actually sent a really big survey to almost everyone in the company. And it was like what can the glossy experience not be without what does glossy look like what does glossy feel like what does glossy sound like and i realized that on a lot of these questions there were a ton of answers so it was like how do you create an experience that people can feel is as personal as possible I read about a specific partnership you worked on during your time at Glossier where you guys partnered with a beloved fried chicken sandwich spot in San Francisco. Why are these real life touch points important? Well, the San Francisco pop-up, which was probably the hardest one we ever did, but also my personal favorite, you know, we made lemonade out of a difficult situation. We knew we had a super strong customer base in San Francisco. We really wanted to have a pop-up there. It was really hard to find a piece of real estate that was right for us. At the time, there were a lot of regulations around San Francisco retail real estate, and we were really struggling to find a space, but because Emily, to her credit, had really given us the opportunity to be creative and to hyper-localize that experience. We knew that we had a lot of flexibility. And so I told the team, look everywhere, you know, look on Craigslist, look for, you know, defunct businesses, look for anything. And we had always wanted to do a Cafe Glossier. It was kind of on the list of dreams. We saw this restaurant that was for sale and it was right in the neighborhood that we wanted. It was in the mission and it was a really well-loved cafe. And, you know, the owner was really struggling. So we called him and we said, would you be interested in potentially partnering with us? And he had no idea who we were. And so we said, I said, okay, I'm going to fly to San Francisco and I'm going to try everything on your menu because the food has to be good and it has to be clean and it has to be all of these things. But it seemed to be a really popular spot that had been there forever. So we wanted to also honor that heritage a little bit. I flew to San Francisco and tried fried chicken 20 different ways. It was so good. And the way that he spoke about his food, like there was a lot of soul behind it. The space was not very glossy. It had good bones, but we needed to do a lot of work and so I said look this is what we're thinking like every wall is going to be pink and we're changing that we're going to change every piece of furniture you, you can keep all the sales from food and beverage and we'll help you with the rent we structured something that would basically make it worth it for him to stay in business and hopefully would also create a little bit of marketing so that he could keep it open um, later on he was like, I don't know about the pink walls, you know, but I said, why don't you ask the women in your life uh, what they think of Glossier and call us this week. 
and then he he called us later in the week and he said wow I spoke to my nieces you know <laughs> and uh, they spoke about your brand it was like when people speak about my fried chicken sandwich and so I said okay deal let's let's do this you know and we wanted to create something that was so special where people would actually interact with the food it was in stage as a cafe it was like there was wine and there was aperitivo and there was fried chicken sandwiches and french fries that we actually gave to customers in the queue and all of that really came together in a really nice way that was not for show it was for real where do you collect inspiration for these offline experiences uh well i have sixty thousand images and screenshots on my phone so that's like it's hard to live in my head, you know, <laughs> just everything is overly stimulating in a way. But uh, so on the phones, on Pinterest, on everywhere. And also I would say like just from memory, there are just little details that strike me. And that sometimes I years later think about them like, where was I? You know, when I, there was this one object that I saw and it was just for the specific cues and how can I go and find it? And then it's just like endless scrolling to try to find it. So I wanted to move forward and talk about Gia, your baby. What inspired you to start Gia? So many things, you know, Gia was the merger of so many different inspirations in my life, starting with my childhood in France and the south of France, and this culture of aperitivo, this culture of gathering in a way that was a lot more careless than we do today. And I mean that in the most positive way and like careless in the sense that like gathering without thinking about consequences just for the sake of the moment. There was also my relationship with food. I ended up, you know, really doing a lot of work in terms of what was affecting my body and why I was feeling a certain way in a way that I thought was unique to me, but from talking to people seems to be affecting a lot of people. I was extremely foggy all the time, even though I had slowly but surely stopped drinking because I realized that was a big trigger for me. It's like, if I drank, I was operating at maybe 70% the following day, which actually I hear is the case for most people. And I always had stomach pains. And so I had sort of like just realized alcohol was not for me. And it was one of those things that really led me to notice that there was such a social stigma around people who didn't drink. Like by any measure, I am not someone who's boring, not someone who doesn't want to socialize. I'm definitely a social creature. And I always felt like I wasn't participating when I was having dinner with friends. And like, there was a lot of pressure to drink and that didn't seem right to me. And I also, I also was really inspired by the way that food has evolved in our plate and there's just a lot more mindfulness in terms of the way that we eat but how there just wasn't any options for drinking that were better and at the same time people I had been noticing over the past year were really trying to cut down on their drinking so that perspective had changed a little bit where I felt less judged and there was often another person at the dinner table that also didn't want to drink and so I was thinking like, wow, there's really a lot of demand for something like this, but not a whole lot of supply. And it's on a trip to Milan with some friends when we were arguing over whether to get another pasta or not for lunch. I sort of said, like, why don't we get another pasta and maybe you shouldn't have another Aperol spritz. And my friend was like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, there's bright orange and it has so much sugar. And I know it's like Italian life, but like it's that can't be better than another dish of pasta and that's when it really clicked I was like wow like there's got to be a, a shift from the way that we think about food to really encompass the way that we drink as well so I wanted to create a drink that wasn't too sweet and if you think about non-alcoholic drinks the first 
word that often comes to mind is mocktail. And I wanted to create like the anti-mocktail, meaning, I mean, mocktail has a joke in its name, you know, it's not a serious drink. And so the inspiration was, how do you create a drink that's actually perfect for transitioning from work into play? It was inspired by l'apéro, this moment in time before dinner where people gather and really shift into social mode and also knowing a lot of chefs and really appreciating just the hospitality industry it's really what I live for I was like there's just no way that all of these restaurants are going to survive if people quit drinking we need to create a product that will be perfect to prime your appetite before dinner so we set out to create a bitter drink um, and that meant starting with gentian root, which is an alpine flower, an alpine root that is very bitter and is the base of a lot of aperitivo drinks. As of now, all of our ingredients are sourced near their place of origin. So our yuzu comes from Japan. A lot of our herb extracts come from the south of France and the Alps. And then a few of them come from California. There's a very strong sense of the Mediterranean lifestyle embedded into Gia's DNA. How much of your upbringing is infused into the brand story? A lot, I have to say. I think I grew up in Lyon and I would spend every summer with my grandmother in the south of France. And I think she was the biggest inspiration in my life. And she actually used to dilute her drinks um, so that she could have more and she could, you know, control her buzz a little bit more. And so she would often have cassis and champagne and create Cure Royale. And she would also make gigantic jugs of limoncello. And she was she was the best hostess that I knew. And a lot of the recipes are inspired by her. And a lot of the way that I cook is inspired by her. And, you know, I think a lot of the way that I live my life is inspired by her. And so to me, Gia is more than just the flavors of the Mediterranean. And I hope people feel that too. Yes, it's a vacation in a bottle. Yes, it's this moment of decompression that really prepares you for being social. And it's about being hyper-connected with the people that you're with, which I think resonates even more in a time when we can't gather as much. But I think for me, it's also a bit of time travel and to a more innocent time where, you know, she was with us and I was just learning from her and everything felt so natural. And I think creating that uh, aperitivo culture here in the U.S. is really introducing that moment or break in the day when we can switch to social mode. Yeah, and I'm so happy to hear that because, you know, we also had to completely pivot. We were supposed to launch in restaurants and then the pandemic hit and it was yet another challenge. It was one thing to learn to create a hospitality atmosphere at Diggin and then translate a digital experience into an offline experience at Glossier. But now I was like, wow, how do you actually create a gathering and a moment of connection when people can't be together? That meant, you know, working twice as hard on the packaging and creating these moments of joy, because I think ultimately it's about really appreciating the small moments. And that's what my life purpose is. And I think it's what a lot of hospitality companies really strive for is to make this one moment in your day, in your week, really special. And we had to rethink everything and, you know, kind of got to where we are today. So what was it like launching your brand during the pandemic? It was incredibly difficult. <laughs> I can't lie to you. And I think I have a pretty thick skin, but we launched on June 16th, which was during the pandemic and kind of on the tail of all of the Black Lives Matter protests, which made things twice as difficult. And we sort of got to the point where we had been stalled for so long and our product was made and we needed to sell it. And we said, it's going to be not the launch of our dreams and not the launch where we can have a big disco party where, you know, 
non-alcoholic drinks are even more fun than alcoholic drinks and it's not going to be in all of these restaurants that we love because a lot of them are struggling but we really want to make a difference for each individual person that trusts us on the day of our launch and on the weeks following our launch and so we devoted all of our efforts to making a difference on the individual level we hand wrote you know 1200 note cards to customers the first week we really went you know the extra mile to connect with people we really tried to kind of understand what they liked and what they didn't like to adjust, try to listen to them, you know, more than ever and, and try to understand like what resonates in these times. And that was also constantly evolving between March and June. So much changed. People learned to cook. People, you know, uh, went from doing a lot of FaceTime calls all day to having full digital fatigue. And people um, suddenly weren't able to go to Europe anymore. And were some of them, you know, were kind of craving this moment of escapism. So how can we, you know, bring a little bit of Europe to them? And it's been such a challenge. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because from an outside perspective, it seems like the launch of Gia during this strange and unusual time was actually pretty timely in the sense that everything about the product, the story, the message behind it truly resonates. Like to your point about feeling like you need the moment of your day to reconnect and escapism in a bottle and also um, slowing down. It was the perfect beverage that people were craving to consume at this time, especially since most people aren't really consuming beauty or fashion as much. And so do you feel like even though you guys did have to pivot massively was it sort of a blessing in disguise or do you feel like building that direct to consumer relationship has only made your brand stronger? Definitely. I think it's still too in the middle of it right now to call it a blessing in disguise because the reality is it's just really hard to spread the word when you don't have people sharing tables. And so, you know, we rely heavily on word of mouth. We also rely heavily on restaurants. I also think some restaurants rely heavily on brands like us. And so that's been definitely difficult. However, I think, you know, in the long run, it will be really special to have had this direct relationship to customers because Gia is 95% of our sales are online right now. And so that means that we get to communicate directly with the people that consume our beverage. And I think that that's something that's very different from other beverage brands. Hopefully we get to keep these relationships and foster them and grow them in a way that will really differentiate us in the future. How do you see Gia evolving as a brand? First of all, I the mission for Gia is to change the way that people drink. So it's a very lofty goal and it starts with one bitter non-alcoholic spirits, but we will be expanding into other categories. How can we take you from sunset to sunrise? We talk about this a lot. It's printed on our box. And that really means like we started with this pre-dinner drink that you can actually consume all night, but we'll want to have more of that evening mouthfeel. Um, so we're working on new flavors for the next few years. Uh, we have a pretty long roadmap. We're also working on a single serve drinks for when public places reopen and when we can go to a concert together and do all these things that we miss heavily right now. But my goal is really to to change the way that people drink. It's like for people to just have better options. Because if you look at the beverage aisle right now, whether it's in your supermarket or your liquor store, everything has added sugar, everything has stevia, everything has a lot of preservatives and everything has natural flavors or non-natural flavors. And it's like our drink is made up exclusively of extracts. It's 
actually, I, I can say pretty confidently, like the cleanest drink that you could be consuming right now. And so I want to keep changing that and hopefully set a new standard for the options on the market. And for the listeners of this podcast, why was it important that you entered the market with something that tasted more like a bitter? It's, it was based on a lot of the feedback that we got from, from people. We thankfully, before the pandemic, did a lot of community building and got a lot of feedback. We poured a thousand guias. We called it our thousand one pours initiative to get feedback from people. And a lot of their feedback was this drink is just not sweet enough. I need sugar in it. And I said, you know, that's great. You can add a syrup. We want it to be versatile. But the other half of people said, finally, a drink that doesn't have any added sugar or is not too sweet. And I was like, well, we're creating this drink for these people that have no other options. So let's keep the base of Gia, not sweet and bitter. It's the perfect appetizer. And then from there, you know, you can mix it with a tonic or we can mix it with elderflower soda. You can mix it with so many things and it'll be very versatile. I think aperitivo generally can kind of linger on through later in the evening. We call it apéro in France. and But aperitivo can also mean like the snacks that you're eating during this time, or it can just be aperitivo as the beverage. And that would be more like on the Italian side. So you grew up in France, developed your career in New York, and you currently live in Los Angeles. How do these three different cities inform your identity? Oh, it's funny. It's I think a lot of people who don't live in the country where they're from will relate to this, but I just don't know which of these places is my home in a way. I find I recharge in France. Everything feels very natural there, but my career is so heavily inspired by and fueled by the energy of professional experience in the United States. You just don't find that in other places, and I think that's why a lot of us are here. You know, in Los Angeles, I think after 10 years in New York, I honestly just wanted a little break. And I came to LA for a few months and I realized, even though it's the furthest from France, it's actually where my life is the closest in terms of lifestyle. I get to be outside more. A lot of the food here, like everything grows in California. And that makes a big difference in my life because my body just works better here. And the light and the sun... It's the closest thing to the south of France, I would say, that I can find in the U.S. So it's been the, the compromise. That's really beautiful. And I've noticed, too, that you've taken up gardening since moving to Los Angeles. I have. And now uh, it's a big thing, actually, in my life this weekend because it's planting weekend. So I've been hunting all of the organic nurseries in L.A. to find plants of cauliflower and Brussels sprouts. And, and I'm excited for my second season of gardening. Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you about three things based on the three different cities that you've lived in. What is your favorite thing about Paris? The culture. And what is your favorite thing about New York? I just love how dense it is. I love that, by the way, what I hated uh, when I left, I, I think I was over it and it's what I miss a little bit now. Love and hate are always just so close together, but I just love walking two blocks and running into a friend or just being able to get out of my house in my pajamas and have three coffee shops around me. And I just love the proximity to everything. And what about Los Angeles, even though you've just mentioned all of those things? <laughs> I love a slightly slower life and a slightly more connected life in Los Angeles. I think it's hard to explain, but I'm less busy and more productive here. I wake up with the sun. I go to bed earlier. I eat better. There's less stress overall. You know, I work even longer days here for some reason um, because I start my day on New York time. But there's something about the lifestyle that is less stress inducive. 
Yeah, there's definitely a more balanced lifestyle and hopefully you get to still have a lot of work activity as well. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Melanie, for joining me today. And I hope to see you soon in LA. I hope you come visit very soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much to Melanie for joining us today on the Art of Travel podcast. To find Melanie's work, you can find her at Melanie Mazarin or at DrinkGia on Instagram. The Art of Travel is created and hosted by Olivia Lopez, produced by Jason Stewart, with music composed by Slow Shiver. We'll see you then.